When it comes to e-commerce, there's a big conversation happening about marketplaces versus platforms. And today I get to interview the CEO of what he calls one of e-commerce best kept secrets. It's a platform called Miva that literally facilitates billions of dollars of sales a year. And you may never have heard of them, but we get to break into his mind and he pulls out his crystal ball, tells us a little about e-commerce and also how we can be making that transition from maybe small startup business to more legitimate, more robust, more self-sustaining e-commerce business. I hope you like this episode. Stay tuned. It's going to be a good one. Here we go. Hi, I'm Tim Jordan. And in every corner of the world, entrepreneurship is growing. So join me as I explore the stories of successes and failures. Listen in as I chat with the risk takers, the adventurous, and the entrepreneurial veterans. We all have a dream of living a life fulfilling our passions, and we want a business that doesn't make us punch a time clock, but instead runs around the clock in the a.m. and the p.m. So get motivated, get inspired. You're listening to the AMPM Podcast. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the AMPM Podcast. Today, we are talking again about e-commerce. I know that in the past several episodes, we've kind of deviated away from actually talking about e-commerce and had more messaging and content for e-commerce sellers. But today, we're going back to the nitty-gritty hardcore kind of tech nerdery. I don't know how you describe this. So today we have my buddy Rick from Miva, spelled M-I-V-A. And Miva has been around a very long time, but you might not have heard about it. So Rick, we're glad to have you here. Glad for you to be able to introduce us to Miva and be able to bring us some really good uh, insight. Well, Tim, thank you so much for having me on the show today. So tell everybody what Miva is. Like, Give us the, the five-minute elevator pitch, so to speak. Sure. So Miva is a mid-market or emerging enterprise e-commerce platform. The The shortcut to explaining what it is is we're similar to, say, a Magento or a big commerce enterprise, even some level to a Shopify Plus. But we really play on the more complex side with, uh, with the big commerce enterprise and Magento type product. Gotcha. So when I think about like the e-commerce roadmap, I come from the Amazon space, right? Yep. So I think of like, selling a few things on eBay and arbitraging and then selling on Amazon. And then maybe the next step up is to start selling on Shopify, which is fairly plug and play. Yep. And then, you know, your bigger brands are all using big commerce, WooCommerce, Magento, like these huge platforms. And I- I'm really not super familiar with these other platforms. So I'm looking forward to you educating me here. But when I think about something like Shopify, it is labeled as easy, right? Like <laughs> anybody can set up a Shopify store. And then when I think about like Magento, my head explodes because I need a hundred people on a dev team just to put this thing together. Yep, that's correct. And we're somewhere in between those two places. <laughs> <laughs> so I assume that you're going to tell us there is a place for something more robust than Shopify, but obviously it's easier than the big ones. Yep, right? I would. Yeah, that's exactly right. I you know Shopify is easy to use um, by any standard definition. You know, an e-commerce platform is fundamentally, it is a, it's like a content management system. I mean, everyone, everyone in the world's familiar with WordPress, at least you ever built a website. WordPress is a CMS or content management system for a non-e-commerce site. And all of the platforms you're mentioning, Shopify, BigCommerce, Miva, Magento, Woo, even though Woo plugs into Word, um, we are ultimately content management systems for e-commerce. And by that, it's a catalog management system. You put in all your products and then this is the thing that displays your web pages, calculates shipping, calculates tax, uh, connects to your fulfillment center, et cetera. So it does all the heavy lifting behind the scenes. I got you. It makes total sense. 
So when we think about, we're using the word platform. I want to back up just a second. We're talking sure. about platform. And in the world of e-commerce, there's, a, there's kind of two key players in the game. There's platforms and there's marketplaces. All right. So a marketplace, just spitting some names out, would be that Amazon, Walmart, eBay. And then a platform is, it's different. It is, it is like you said, a content management system where you basically have to build your own site, your own hosting. And the way I differentiate in my head, and I, I want you to school me here, but the way I differentiate is a marketplace is somewhere where there's already existing traffic and I'm posting my products. A platform is a tool that I use to create my own site where I have to bring my own traffic. So I differentiate based on traffic. But if I asked you, what's the difference between a marketplace and a platform, how would you define it? Sure. I think you're starting the right spot. I think a marketplace, you know, if you think of, if you think of retail, like traditional retail, right, there's some great analogies there. So if you have a, um, just a standalone store, I go build a store in a building, that's like having your own e-commerce platform or custom e-commerce platform. If I go to a mall where I still have to lay out my store and design my store, but I'm in a bunch of other stores, that's kind of like what a Shopify or Amoeba does. And then if you go to say a flea market or swap meet, that's like what Amazon, eBay, Etsy, et cetera do. They drive in the foot traffic. They tell you where your spot is. You get a 10 by 10 little spot. You throw up a table, but pretty much every booth at a swap meet looks the same. Uh, and same thing with Amazon. Every store on Amazon looks the same. But they are doing the heavy lifting. They're driving the traffic to your page, and they're they're creating the demand generation. That's also why they get to charge so much more money than, say, a platform. I got you. So makes complete sense. And obviously, there is a lot of advantage to having your own platform than like using a marketplace. What would some of those advantages be? So yeah, like you know, when, one of the things I know you and I have talked a few times, and you talk about people who get started, they do retail arbitrage, they have access to some inventory. Uh, for someone like that, you are going to start on a marketplace. There's no where else would you go, right? You got to have yeah. some eyeballs to come look at your product. But the advantages to having a platform are at some point if you've built a brand, uh, that brand has its own built-in traffic. So you know, um, if I want to, uh, you know, if I'm into I'm I'm not a female yogi, but if I was into Lululemon, right, I have a, I would have a desire as a Lululemon brand loyalist to go to Lululemon stores or Lululemon website and see what they have, right? I don't need Amazon to drive me to the Lululemon website and Amazon to take their cut, right? So the advantages of a platform are a few things. First, the costs are significantly less. Those costs are often transferred into traffic. Um, but if you have a big enough brand or a repeatable enough brand, then you can start leveraging that, that cost savings to build a much bigger business. Uh, you also have total control, right? You don't have issues, for example, with um, bad returns that happen at Amazon or issues with mixed inventory and FBA. All of the sort of pain points that can come with selling on Amazon, they go out the window if you're selling on your own platform. Uh, and then finally, you own the customer, right? So you control that customer experience. You own their data. Uh, you can communicate them. You can offer them new things. Now, granted, you got to follow the laws and the you know the G GDPR and the California stuff, but you still have a much stronger leverage position with your customer base when you're on your own platform. So it's more difficult, but the upside is much higher. Absolutely, right? absolutely. You couldn't. I don't think you could retail arbitrage your way into needing a platform. But I can tell you, like <clears throat> I've met people. I forget the guy's name. But he's the large, I believe, according to him, he's the largest seller of essential oils on Amazon, you know, 10, 11 figures a year in essential oil sales, right? Um, 
that's the kind of thing that an Amazon seller can build. But now he's got a brand. When I when I he was telling me about this, and I said, oh, I forget what the brand call is, but I said, oh, I have a diffuser at home, and it was this brand. He goes, oh, that's my brand. So he he had gotten so big. He had been able to build brand loyalty around essential oils and diffusers. And so then he is in a position where he could leverage that brand, get repeat business and go onto his own platform. And once he's in his own platform, then instead of the ball being in Amazon's court, like he built his own court, right? Now, obviously, this this takes a whole lot of work. And the and what I mean by work is really getting that traffic, right? So to get the traffic, my understanding is you need two things, two two big things. I know there's more, but the two big things are... One, you need a good catalog. And by good catalog, I mean, you should probably have multiple products. That way you can leverage, you know, repeat selling and upselling and stuff like that. You know, I've never seen a great, and there's, there's a few funnels out there, like a one product thing, because once you get their email address and you've got them cookied, if you've sold them the one thing, there's nothing else to sell them. So yep, you exactly. need a catalog with great products that, that are brand driven that people come and buy. The second thing is you need to find a way to pump traffic to it. Because if you put the best product out there in the world and nobody knows to come to your site, you're screwed, right? Yep. No, absolutely. And I mean, if you think about it, um, so obviously you want to have a great catalog. Ideally, you want to have a consumable product. Now, not every consumable product is dog food per se. You know, uh, iPhone cases are a consumable product because people- Yeah, shoes are still consumable. Yeah. Totally, absolutely. So there's a lot of consumable products that people may overlook. But the thing to keep in mind is that, you know, think about, you know, the biggest tech companies in the world, you know, a few names that are going to sprout out at you. You've got uh, Facebook, you've got Google- you got Amazon, those three companies right there pretty much own traffic generation in, in the US, right? And that's one of the reasons they're the three, three of the biggest companies in the world. So that just shows you the power in demand aggregation. And so for a merchant, um, I, like to, I like to tell merchants when I'm consulting with them, Amazon represents between 40 and 50% of all retail in North America of all e-commerce retail in North America, which means I think 40 to 50% of their sales should be done on Amazon. If you're selling way more on Amazon, if you're 100% on Amazon, then you're likely missing out on other channels, whether it's eBay, Etsy, your own platform, whatever. And if you're selling way less than 40 or 50% on Amazon, either you don't have the margin, which means that you should probably look at changing your prices if you can, or finding a way to get better margins, or you're just leaving sales on the table. All right, I'm pausing for a second because I'm writing this down. This is like new to me. So let me make sure I got that correct. You said because Amazon represents 50% of e-commerce sales in the US. Yep. Amazon should represent 50% of your e-commerce sales for your brand and your business. Essentially. I mean, that's not, you know, there's no such, every rule is made to be broken, as they say, right? So there's no such thing as a rule that can't be broken. But I think that's a good heuristic. That's a good rule of thumb to tell, am I too reliant on Amazon? Am I not reliant enough? Now, going back to it, if you're just doing retail arbitrage, your whole business is going to be Amazon and eBay and Walmart, right? That's just where it's at. But if you actually have, if you're either manufacturing or private labeling products and building a brand, I think that rule holds really true. And what would be an exception where Amazon is not a good place for your e-commerce portfolio, so to speak? You know, I, the thing, I mean, I think if you're selling products... This is a tough one. I, I don't know that there's a lot of great exceptions. I mean, the thing is, is Amazon's expensive, right? Uh, not, I don't mean to the consumer, but to the, to the yeah, online to the seller. Yeah, they take a big chunk. Take a big chunk. So the main reason to not sell on Amazon is because you can't afford it. And so if you're somehow able to piece together a business, but you can't afford Amazon's cut, good for you for piecing together a business now. But I would be worried that 
one bump in the road and you're not going to have enough margin to survive. Yeah, so. it's almost like if you can't afford to pay Amazon, then your margins are probably too slim. You've got a fundamental flaw in your business. Yeah, exactly. That is exactly right. I was just going to say where I see people doing a lot more on a platform and not a marketplace is say maybe the product is already saturated on Amazon. So if they drive traffic to their website and they have great Facebook, Instagram ads, things like that, and they're charging $30 for this, you know, cleaver, this knife, yep. but everybody else is selling it for $11 on Amazon. If you drive traffic to Amazon, they might actually see your competitors and lose sales, right? Yeah, totally. And then the other thing you've got to worry about on Amazon is, are you going to get ripped off either by another competitor yeah. or by Amazon themselves? You know, one example I like to use is, I think most of us are familiar with the company PopSockets. They make those little plastic things that go on the back yep. of your phone. And pop sockets actually for a for a little plastic widget, little piece of plastic and rubber, they've done a great job building a brand. The fact that we know that name is even impressive. But you know they run a risk. How hard would it be for there to be a Amazon Basics phone holder that looks identical to pop sockets? I mean, it would take all of thirty seconds of Amazon's time to think about it. So there's always some risk that by selling on Amazon, Amazon's seeing your sales data, and once they see your sales data, you know you're, you're you're dancing with the dragon, so to speak, and the dragon might choose to burn you if you're not careful. Yeah, it's it's Amazon's an interesting topic because it's kind of like darned if you do, darned if you don't. Like you need to be on it, but you can't rely on it. I heard um, someone a <laughs> long time ago, one of those first Amazon conferences in Seattle, it said something about becoming platform agnostic. Like you can't put all your faith in it, right? Yep. So I'm constantly telling people like, hey, don't be an Amazon seller. Be a product seller that uses Amazon, but be thinking about that next step, right? That that next step of actually maturing your business, right? That is extremely sage advice. I mean, so I can think of a, uh, a friend of mine in San Diego who uh, I met through Miva, but you know, I've known him so long at this point, he's just a friend. And um, they they started by doing retail arbitrage, selling on Amazon, extending to eBay. Then they start going to China to source their own products, right? And there's a process, obviously going to China pre-pandemic, but there was a process there where they found out what sold. You know, retail arbitrage, for example, is a great way to see what there's a lot of market demand for. It's not the only way, but it's a great way to find out what people are willing to pay for that there's margin on, right? And then, um, and then if you're only on Amazon, at, at a very minimum, get on eBay. If you're doing anything that's even closely related to handcrafted or artistic, make sure it's on Etsy. Like start getting out of just one marketplace. And then from there, the stuff that's repeatable, the stuff that people are buying over and over again, let's say you're selling it over and over again, but it's a screwdriver and it's got the Stanley name on it. Well, could you make the exact same screwdriver with the Tim Jordan name on it? You know, like it's, it, that's where you want to start looking at those opportunities to build your brand. Yep. All right. So talking about actually building these platforms now, right? Yep. Like we know that it's a big step. We know that it's important. We've talked about that. We know that between marketplace and platforms, we've decided there's probably a place for both for many, many products. You know, Tom Shoes has a website, but you can also buy Tom Shoes on Amazon, right? It's necessary. Um, what's interesting is in your position, you get to see a lot of these companies that are becoming very serious, uh, meaning they're doing a lot of revenue, right? Like if, if I were to look at the Shopify portfolio, for example, it's a lot of businesses that have never launched. I mean, if I could look at everybody that has a Shopify account right now, the data is going to be skewed because it's all these people that thought it was going to be great to pay whatever, $29 a month, set up some you know, crappy Shopify store, and it's never gone. But for you, you have the advantage of seeing data and seeing information and seeing brands that are taking this more seriously because all of your 
brands, the thousands of brands that are on the Miva platform are actually creating revenue and driving sales, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. We have, we have, a, you know, we have, you could probably count the number of people doing zero revenue on your hands because it's yeah. just way too expensive to use our platform for that. But, and Shopify is a great example here. You know, I don't know the numbers anymore. It used to be Shopify's average retailer. An average is a funky number because you have a lot of people doing zero to bring that average yeah. down. But their average retailer was doing about five grand a year in sales. Now, for every Kylie Jenner you have doing 200 million, you've got however many people offset that doing zero, right? So you're correct. A lot of people pay $29.99 to get started. They either build a site and don't launch or they never even build it. Then Shopify has got that, you know, put it on ice plan, but no, don't give up on your dream and it's $14.99 or whatever they charge, right? So Shopify has got an immense number of merchants and they do drive a lot of traffic. Uh, they don't drive the traffic, but they, there's a lot of GMV going through a lot of traffic. Yeah. Yeah. But, but you're right. A lot of those merchants are small. Our average merchant, you know, our new average merchant coming to us is doing North of 2 million a year in online sales. Sometimes often that 2 million is, is the whole business, but we also, sometimes that 2 million is part of a huge corporation. You know, we have a Cintas as a customer. You guys have all seen their trucks driving around with uniforms and stuff. Uh, they have a division that sells first aid kits for gyms and stuff, right? So we've got stuff like that on our platform. Um, and so you do see you do see a broad spectrum, and we do see a lot of real data about what people are selling online and what they can do. All right. So with all that data, with this like kind of crystal ball, bird's eye view of what's happening in, let's say, the newer, the slightly smaller, the less mature, but serious businesses, Okay. Because if we looked at all of e-commerce, we looked like Magento. We're looking at these huge brands that most of the listeners, honestly, probably can't relate to. But a lot of our listeners, they could, they could be thinking about a 2 to 3 to $4 million a year business. That's easy. All right. So with your crystal ball, let's talk a little bit about some of the things that you've identified as success and failures with your users. Cool? Sure. So I guess the first question would be, when you look at like the most successful brands, the most successful sellers on your platform... What are some of the things that they are consistently getting right? So that's a great question. One of the things they're most consistently getting right is meeting the customer where the customer wants to be met. So we, you know, we're not a we're we're not a specialty platform in any vertical, but because we handle complex sites well, we tend to have a lot of people doing things like auto parts, right? Now, if you think about uh, you think about the fanaticism that goes with people's cars, whether it's Fast and the Furious style cars or diesel pickup trucks, people get obsessive about their cars. And during pandemic, that exploded, right? I mean, it was sort of like why people started working on their homes. And we have a lot of homeware customers too. So you start seeing this people's demand. Well, if I happen to have a uh, 2017 Ford F-150 special version, right? I'm not a truck guy, so forgive me, forgive me for this. <laughs> I'm actually kind of a Jeep guy, but but I'm going to go with my Ford analogy. So uh, if I have this Ford version and I'm going to a, an aftermarket trucks site to get stuff, I don't want to see all the parts on that site that can't fit my truck. It's not interesting to me. I might, There might be 25,000 SKUs on the site and there might only be 150 SKUs that matter to me. So I need to be able to go tell that site what, what car I care about and then have the whole navigation set change to what I want to shop for, right? Um, even in a more simple example, we meant, I mentioned iPhone cases a second ago. 
Well, most people are brand aficionados for their phone. So if you're into iPhones and you say go to, I'm trying to think of a big case company. Otterbox. Yeah, go to Otterbox. Once Otterbox knows I'm an iPhone guy, they should probably really show me iPhones. There should be a navigation set to see other phones, right? But I'm an iPhone guy. And I should be able to tell Otterbox I got a 12 Pro and then that's all I'm going to see. And so we see it's about meeting the customer where they want to be and showing them the stuff, especially in a mobile first world, right? You know, uh, an example I like to use is, you know, I'm six foot six. I got size 14 feet. I'll get advertisements and I'm kind of a sneaker guy. So I'll get advertisements from K-Swiss all the time because I like their shoes. For the life of me, I can't figure out how to find a size 14 on their mobile site. No diss on a shoe brand I like, but and Vans the same way. I love Vans. Figuring out if I can order a pair of Vans on my iPhone is is a fool's errand. And so what I end up doing is bookmarking stuff, going to my my laptop and looking it up. By that time, it could be sold out or it didn't exist in the first place. And so even these huge brands, K-Swiss, Vans, et cetera, they're missing out on conversion optimization options by not meeting me, the shopper, where I want to be. And so that's where we see people really leveraging it. So I hate the term, you know, dummy proof or idiot proof or dummying it down. But I, I think you know what I mean. It kind of applies like right now, people's attention span. And honestly, people have become... I think entitled is the right word. Like people have become entitled to get what they want immediately, see what they want, not have to go through a bunch of bullcrap navigating. So it's all about making very, very rapid suggestions and getting them what they want immediately on their screen. Is that right? Absolutely. In fact, you know, I think you could look at it this way. Amazon did a phenomenal job at taking effectively everything in the world that you used to go to a regular store for, bundle that with Prime. And if if I need toothpaste, but I don't need it today, I'm not going to the grocery store. Well, I don't want yep. to do with parking. You know, I'll just hit the button and the toothpaste shows up in two days and that's that. Shopify took that to a new and interesting logical step. Now, if I have an impulse buy, that's, that, you know, they probably have more than a single product going back to your funnel conversation. But if I have an impulse buy that I can advertise on Facebook or Instagram or in the future coming Pinterest or TikTok and have a real fast funnel to check out, when I buy something on social media where I'm like, oh, that's clever, let me buy it. And you know, I'm two steps away from an Apple Pay checkout and boom, it's on its way. 99% of the time is Shopify. So Shopify has really mastered this impulse buy funnel. Amazon has dominated the necessity buy funnel. Um, and so what's left in the marketplace, you know, the other 30 or 40% of total online retail in North America is all the more advanced stuff. It's people who want to discover products. It's people who have specialty products for the type of car they have or the size body they have. And it really is about, but it goes back to your entitlement comment. You want to make sure you're serving them the thing they want. No one has the patience anymore for browsing through stuff they can't have. All right. That's great. That's not what I thought you were going to start with. That's that's an amazing, <laughs> amazing um observation. So that's one of the things that people are doing well. What's the second thing that you would say the most successful sellers on your platform are doing well? Second thing, the most successful platform, you know, I mean, if I'm going to go real, if I'm going to get blocking and tackling to use a sports analogy, great product descriptions, great photography. I mean, people, I think discount how simple that stuff is. And, and part of it is it's sort of like eating your veggies, right? We all know we're supposed to eat our veggies. We all know I should have great product photography and a, and a decent, compelling product copy. If you're a Seinfeld fan, I'm probably displaying my age a little bit, although hopefully Seinfeld endures the old Jay Peterman catalog, right? The Jay Peterman catalog was all about great product descriptions. And so those things translate to the web. You've got to have, if, if someone can't see the product, you've got to give them a visceral experience and people who really do a great job 
You have multiple angles. You answer their questions. You tell them if it's going to fit or how big it is or how it's going to be shipped or how easy your hard returns are. And all those things, it really goes back to kind of what you're saying about the customer. You need to make sure the customer has all of their check marks checked and that they don't have any fear left. Okay. Love it. So when you're looking at that same, you know, from that same perspective that you have, the companies that maybe aren't doing so well. So the underperforming companies, the companies that are struggling, what are the things that they're consistently getting wrong and doing poorly with? Sure. That one's probably the easiest question you've asked. Um, The thing that I see most commonly flubbed is you'll have someone who built a website. It could be three years ago. It could be 20 years ago. They don't, it's, I find this often tends to be an age demographic thing, but they're oddly not sold on e-commerce. I doubt most of your listeners are going to have this problem, but they're oddly not sold on e-commerce. It's, it's sort of an add-on to their business, whether they're B2B or they just have an old site. And they can't imagine, they can't imagine that if they rebuild their site and focus on, on modern web design, mobile first web design with an easy checkout flow, they can't imagine sales actually increasing. They convince themselves in their head that they're getting all the customers there are to get. And that's almost certainly never true. Going back to my K-Swiss analogy, K-Swiss isn't getting all the customers they can ever get. Vans isn't getting it. I promise you even Amazon's not getting it. So your average customer should always be assuming that they there's more eyeballs wanting to buy than are buying. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What would a second thing be? Making checkout too hard. So, I mean, it's sort of a, it's sort of a part B of that, but whether it is simple stuff like not taking American Express or not taking Apple Pay or not taking PayPal, you know, I've seen, I see merchants and and I'll throw on that shipping. So I'm going to do a two-parter here. I see merchants squabble about pennies, right? Well, American Express takes too much. American Express takes on average about 75 basis points more than Visa or MasterCard. Yeah. If you can't absorb that 75 basis points, you've you got, got a margin problem, problem right? Yeah. Or they flip out about shipping. Well, the fact of the matter is shipping, you know, customer, I'm going to, here's a newsflash. You should know this. Customers want free shipping. They really Thanks want free. Amazon. <laughs> yeah, they totally, they want free two-day shipping, but they'll take free shipping, right? Um, and the reason goes like this. When I go to Target to buy something, guess what? Target paid to ship it to get to that store. And I don't pay shipping at checkout. The customer doesn't want to be confused by the cost of the item. It's not that the customer is being cheap per se. Yes, every customer wants it as cheap as possible, but they don't want surprises. Customers hate surprises. And so often when you go through someone's website, if you do a a site analysis or a site audit, you see surprise after surprise after surprise, whether it's shipping speed or poor checkout or, or not enough information to make an educated decision. Just if you spend your whole time trying to imagine that you're a customer who knows nothing and having you pretend to buy something and eliminate surprises, your business will improve. So you mentioned something that I made a note about. You said PayPal. All yeah. right. PayPal is interesting in the e-commerce space because it's obviously been around forever. You know, like, it, like it's, the old, it's the old system. And the user experience actually sucks. All right. If I put PayPal in my... Uh, as one of my payment options in my e-commerce store. If I, as a buyer, I'm buying something from this e-commerce store, click the PayPal button, it takes me out of their platform and into the PayPal environment. And it does like all this crazy back and forth stuff where I have like 28 steps to pay on PayPal as opposed to just put my credit card in. But well, that depends on, how you, love it. depends on how you set it up. So that's not oh, universally, okay. universally true. That What you described can be true. And 
I would bet those don't work as well, but you're correct. (laughs) So why are, but even if it's more difficult than a credit card, why are e-commerce stores still using PayPal? Or I guess, I guess the answer to that would be because people want to, but why do people still want to pay with PayPal? And, and I I guess that raises the question of like, how many options do we have? Because I know there's got to be a conversation about simplification, like, like, let's not put too many options. When I go to an e-commerce store and I see 29,000 ways to pay, you, know, you got WeChat pay and, you know, all this stuff. Like, <laughs> should we be doing that to give them more options or should we start forcing people into our system at Simplified? So that's a great question. That's really a great question. So let me let me kind of give a little little bit of history on why PayPal dominated for so long and then why I think they're still competitive. They don't dominate like they used to, although they're still they're bigger than they've ever been. So for a long time, PayPal was the solution for a trust problem, right? Mm. I, I go to a website. I go to I go to jackshirts.com. I don't know Jack, but I like this shirt. So I want to check out. And, I, and, and on top of that, maybe I don't have my credit card with me, but I know my PayPal login. So I don't have to worry about him stealing my card, and I don't have to get up off my, my ass and go get my, my wallet, right? So PayPal sort of solved a convenience problem and a security problem, really, I would say, from when they launched instant checkout in the mid 2000s, like 2004 or five up until a few years ago, what they solve for now, if you use the modern PayPal. So I'm going to define modern PayPal as the little pop-up that doesn't take you off site where all you do is log in. Um, it'll still gives you the wallet. It still gives you security and it's nice and fast where they're. And even though they're still growing like mad, where their challenges come in, is if you look at um, if you look at a site that's got a nice Apple Pay implementation. Now Apple Pay tends to be mobile. Apple Pay does all the things that PayPal does, but faster and easier. So, um, so I do think PayPal has some headwinds in the in the marketplace. But for now, customers, you know, my mom's not going to figure out Apple Pay. My mom knows how to use her PayPal account, and and that's always something to keep in mind. Yeah, and this all changes when we cross borders, right? Because. You know, most of the Miva customers are based in the U.S., right? And they're selling in the U.S. I do know when we cross borders, especially like I've recently had conversations about Eastern Europe and France. Like if you can't pay with PayPal, they're not going to buy from you. Yep. Right. So so PayPal's certainly one of PayPal's real juggernaut strengths is international stuff. And, And, you know, I would love to talk more about that. I'm not frankly just not an expert on that, but I can tell you that that is where they shine. Uh, I know this from their own propaganda, but I also know it to be true. Yeah. I love propaganda versus marketing, right? Is it? Yeah. Is there a difference or is it kind of the same? I think it's all the same. <laughs> it's yeah. Man, I'm writing down so many questions. I know we're not going to be able to get to all these in this time, but man, you're just, you're, you're making my head spin here. All right. So I'm going to change the subject just briefly. One thing that's a hot topic of conversation to e-commerce stores is selling their businesses, right? So we see these like big unicorn businesses like Thrasio pop up and everybody wants to, you know, build something and sell it at a high multiple quickly, 18, 24 months life cycle. And we're seeing that really happen from Amazon brands. That's where we saw this big thing happen. Now, of course, there's been business brokers for years selling e-commerce businesses, but the marketplaces have accelerated this. I personally see a huge problem. All right. And that problem that I see is people spending a boatload of money to buy Amazon businesses that aren't real businesses, meaning you're 100% relying on Amazon and tomorrow Amazon can shut that down. Yep. Just was it last last week at the time of recording last week, like eight of the top 24 supplement brands on Amazon disappeared overnight. Oh, I right? didn't even we, that. Yeah. That gone, right? So it is risky. Now, 
I'm thinking that there's a time and place to start getting people familiar with the concept of building an off Amazon or off marketplace platform presence, start getting branding, start getting traction, because that will affect a selling multiple, right? So can you tell us like, am I right there? Is that something we should be working on? Is there a higher increased valuation of a company by having a complete system like Miva in place for your business? So my personal opinion is yes, absolutely. And I'll I'll tell you this, you know, I've watched the rise. Private equity is a fascinating thing and I I don't want to bore your audience, but, but I, you know, we have private equity backers and I'm kind of in and around that world a lot. There has been a movement in private equity to raise large swaths of capital to go gobble up Amazon sellers, right? Yep. So, so that's sort of driving this market. I wouldn't say call it a bubble because I don't know that they're overpaying, but, but it's certainly created a lot of capital to go. And I think, but I don't know for sure. I think their thesis is that if they have enough weight that they can, they can, you know, kind of keep Amazon at bay or potentially leverage all of those brands together to go off platform and have their own websites sell in other locations. But um, what I can say is for valuations of a business, I have been through raising money. I've been through selling businesses. The, one of the first things anyone who's looking to buy your business when they're valuing it, they're going to look at is, is this business going to exist in a year, three years, five years? And if you, are only, if you were solely selling on Amazon and totally beholden to them, whoever buys you, if they're an intelligent buyer, is going to discount the value of your business based on the Amazon risk. Yeah, completely agree. All right, so we've talked about building your own site, building your own platform, getting off marketplaces. We understand that. Uh, I know we can't go through like a deep dive on like how do we actually do that, but we need to be asking questions like who's ready? So if someone said, hey, man, I'm thinking about launching a brand or I haven't started selling a product yet, but I'm going big or I'm selling on Amazon, like when is somebody ready to start investing in something as robust as a platform like Miva? Sure. So, so I think there's a, a bunch of good rules of thumb people can use. So, um, so I would start with GMV. So if you are, and that's gross merchant volume, so that's the amount of sales going through your store. So if you're selling under a hundred grand a year on Amazon, don't really worry about off Amazon yet. You need to figure out how to get products people want and sell them through Amazon. You, you need to figure out, you just need to get the systems of your business running, right? <clears throat> Once you're over a hundred grand, um, I would at least, you know, I'm not, I would at least be looking at a Shopify, but I would be looking at a Shopify, Big Commerce, Miva, Magento, Woo, depending on your needs. We all have different specialties, right? Um, and then once you get up to about a million in sales, now you have real problems. And what I mean by that is you have product, you have packages go missing, you have customer service reps, you have product sourcing stuff, and you get you quickly get to a point where you can no longer do it all yourself. In fact, I would say at a million dollars, you're likely not doing it all yourself anyway, but but you can't do it yourself anymore. And if you try to do it yourself, you're going to choke it. So when you're ready to get more advanced and scale your business, you need to trust hiring people to do it. And there's two rules of thumb that I like to follow here. First of all, if you can hire someone at an affordable rate to do it 80% as well as you can do it, because I think most entrepreneurs suffer from a type of perfectionism. We all think we can do it best and they have a hard time handing the reins over. If you can hire someone to do it 80% as well as you can for the right price, you should do that. And then you should systematize the 20% they're going to screw up. On top of that, if you think about, I'm going to switch analogies here, but it's the same mentor taught me this. Um, Think about like golf. Golf's an individual sport played with friends. You drive around, you know, it's competitive, but you know, four people in a foursome you play, but fundamentally every golfer is playing against themselves in the course. 
uh, and then um, and then you go up to a basketball team, right? Basketball is five people on the court, and coaching a golfer would be different than coaching a basketball team. Would be different than coaching a baseball team, and ultimately a football team is about as big of a team sport as you get. And um, and so as your business is growing, I always think it's helpful to look through those analogy lenses, right? When you're a one person shop, you're a golfer. And you want to think about it like a golfer. What can you do today to change your swing? Then you become a basketball team and you've got a you've got a right hand person and a left hand person, and you've got a little team. You eventually grow into being a baseball team where you have a dugout and you have different coaches. And then ultimately, if you really succeed, you get big like a football team or something bigger. And and at each step, you have to rethink all your systems and processes and build for the next level. Otherwise, your business will get stuck. And if your business gets stuck, it will ultimately collapse it someday. Okay. Makes a lot of sense. So what are some of the biggest struggles people have when they're making that step into their e-commerce platform business? Like, like, like I'm strapping on my armor, man. I'm getting ready to do this. Like, what is the thing that I need to be most prepared for? You know, this is funny. I'm, I'm going to steal. I, I'm sure you know, John Lawson. So I don't yeah. know if John's been a guest on the show, but uh, I'm going to steal an example my buddy John uses. So John's an e-commerce consultant, speaker, et cetera. John tells people who are in this exact position, if you can't ship a product, if you don't know how to fulfill a product, you're dead in the water. So first thing you got to do when you strap on that armor is make sure you know how to ship product, ship product, track those shipments, handle the customer service, handle those returns. If you can't do that, if you're solely relying on Amazon, getting those packages out, you, you're not ready to go to the next level. Yeah. Okay. That, and that's a good benchmark. Not, not just from what it seems like on the surface, like on the surface, it's like, you're saying, hey, go and get a 3PL. But to actually get where you have a third-party logistics system, you're actually doing a lot. Like there's a lot on that checklist, right? That's, a great, that's actually a great example. So I am not suggesting people get a 3PL yet. I'm suggesting they get that system in place. Yep. And then once you have your system down, use the 3PL to do all the stuff you don't want to do. Yep. That, yep, but that is the way to get there. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. So what's next? All right. It's wrapping up. This is, I'm going to skip a lot of questions, but I want to ask you this. You're the CEO of Miva, right? It's a, it's a, it's a great platform. You see a lot that's going in the e-commerce business. You're in San, San Diego, which, you know, all over California is like e-com hub of the world nearly. Like you see stuff that the rest of us don't. What's next for e-com that we should all start paying attention to, keeping our eyes out on and getting ready for? So, I mean, I think, it's funny. What's next for e-com to me sounds boring, but it's not. And here's what it is. There is still an immense amount of business out there that's done the traditional way. And every stone has to be unturned when it comes to this conversion to digital commerce, right? So if you sell business to business, and by that, what I mean is I don't necessarily sell one item to Tim walking into my door. Tim is, has his own business and I sell him packs of stuff. If you sell business to business and you're still relying on emails, telephones, or faxes, God forbid, to take orders, that is radically transforming. Um, and people, frankly, expect their business-to-business purchases to feel no different than a Shopify purchase. Um, and on top of that, going back to traditional retail, people don't want to, if, if I want to know if um, the thing I'm looking for is in a store. So if you're not doing buy online, pick up and store properly, or online inventory lookups properly, you're getting left behind. I know these are a little bit advanced maybe for a person just going on Amazon, but as they're stepping up and they're getting distribution, one of the things you're going to do, you get a brand. What do you, what do, you do after you have your own, after you're on Amazon, eBay, and have your own website? Well, now you're going to start selling to retail, right? So you're going to start selling to whoever carries your item. Well, you need to be able to make sure people know where to buy that item. And so all of these things are, 
just it's a constant refinement of making it easier for your customer to find the thing they want. It should feel very Apple like. It should feel like it just automatically works. And and if you can constantly look at automatically working your e-commerce site, your business will grow. And what's crazy is every day there's a new solution. Like like the things that people struggled with six months ago, they don't have to struggle with anymore because you know we're talking about private equity being pumped into e-commerce you know brands. We see you know people like Amazon doing what they've done. Well, that's creating this massive environment for other tools and services and automations and like cool ninja stuff that people don't even know about where, in my opinion, these seemingly, I say complex, not complicated, like complex, there's a lot of moving parts, but all of them individually are not complicated. They're fairly simple. Yeah, it's like, great it's, it. it's, it's like breaking down the barriers, like it's, it's making it easier for us. So, so I, I guess to paraphrase your answer, what's next in e-commerce is making very, or all of these things with the environment forming to make these very used to be complicated processes and services and needs. Very, very simple. That's exactly correct. That is a perfect way to summarize it. Yeah. Gotcha. I had to dumb it down for myself to make, <laughs> make sure I got that right. Yeah. I, awesome. have a, I have a magical ability to overstate it. So thank you. <laughs> there we go. All right. Well, that's awesome. I know we're, we're close to the end of time and I don't want to, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but you've thrown so much on me again. If, for those of you looking at YouTube, you can see my note sheet. It's, it's pretty stinking full here. A lot for me to think about, but I want to end with a question I've been asking everybody lately. So, so just to back up for a second, Miva started in the mid nineties, right? Yep. Late. Yeah. 90, 97. And you were an employee of Miva for a long time. Yeah. I came on in 1999. And then you left and came back and bought the company, right? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. That, that story could take its own podcast, but I'll do a real, yes. I'll do a 30 second version. I started okay. as director of North American sales in 1999. Back then you sold e-commerce, not a SaaS like we think of today, but you sold it to web hosting companies. Yep. So I would go to think of the GoDaddy's or the Bluehost of the world, sell them bundles of licenses and they'd turn around and include them with their packages. Um, and then we in 2004 sold it to a pay-per-click search engine company. I won't go into that story. They got clobbered by Google, nothing to do with what we did. Uh, and so when they got clobbered by Google and AdWords, they sold off all the bits and pieces they bought, and that included Miva. And so myself and some people bought it back from them, and we rebuilt it. We started out as a mass market platform, more like Shopify, and we rebuilt it as a mid-market enterprise platform that we've, you know, I never imagined 14 years ago I'd still be doing this in 14 years, but it's actually been a great ride. And uh, it's been, frankly, the best business experience of my life. So you went from a salesman to owning a, frankly, I don't even know how you describe it, but a legitimate tech platform that's powering e-commerce for, I suspect, billions of dollars of sales a year, right? Yep. Yeah. Our customers do north of $2 billion a year in online sales. And so Gosh, it's wild to watch. Yeah. So that being said, you probably had to mature very fast, grow up very fast, like figure out how to, how to do the CEO thing. So the question I've been asking people lately is, if you had to go to your bookshelf and point to a book that you read that changed the game for you, right? Like made everything possible, completely changed your mindset, gave you a piece of information you had to have, and you wanted to recommend that all of our listeners go read that book. What would it be? That's a great question. Cause I have read a lot of books like that, that, that have inspired me. And I could, we could probably talk an hour about this, but if I have to pick just one, it's kind of cliche, but I don't know if it's still in vogue these days. I'm going to go with think and grow rich by Napoleon Hill. And the reason is this, that, and he says it throughout the book, it's in the title of the book, think, and then you'll grow rich. 
And so it's all about sitting and thinking and sitting and thinking and not like dumb thinking, but going back to making it easier to do, making the complex seem easy. That's what thinking gets you. And so Think and Grow Rich is my recommendation. Okay, awesome. And if people wanted to track you down, I know you've got your own podcast. How can they how can they track down your podcast? So my podcast is called Dragon Proof E-commerce and it's on all the normal podcast platforms. Uh Apple, Spotify, YouTube, et cetera. Uh, and I have a book uh, of the same name, Dragon Proof E-commerce, that you can get on Amazon uh, or at dragonproofbook.com. And it, it talks a lot about the same things we talk about here today. And I believe you're going to be a guest on my podcast soon. So if you send me those notes, maybe we can get to the other half of this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. All right, guys, go check out the podcast, Dragon Proof E-commerce. Buy his book, show him some love on Amazon. Although I'm sure you're not making a ton of money on that, but it makes you feel good seeing those book sales come in, right? Yeah, at the end of every month, you get a little deposit. It's nice. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And thanks for being on, man. If, if any of you guys listening have found value in this, make sure to leave us a review on your podcast platform. Give us a thumbs up and a subscribe on the YouTube channel if you're watching it there. Go check out Miva.com and start uh, seeing what they're doing differently. I've been familiar with Miva for, I don't know, a couple of years now. But, you know, you don't see them a lot in marketing. You don't see them like making these big um, press releases. You know, they're kind of just like grinding away, doing some cool stuff in the background, powering a lot of e-commerce sales, but doing it subtly, right? Is that is that a good description? That is a good description. And we're, we're often called the best kept secret in e-commerce, which frankly kind of makes my skin crawl a little bit. I'd like to be the, <laughs> I'd like to be the not secret in e-commerce, but, but you're correct. We power a lot of sales, a lot of big sites. If you've bought much online, you've certainly bought from Amoeba store. And uh, if you have a, a growing and thriving business, we're a great platform for you. Awesome. Little sales pitch there at the end. Thank you so much, Rick, for being on. Thank you all for listening to another rambling episode. And uh, we'll see you guys on the next one.